1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I've entitled this today, I'm too bad for God to save me. I'm too bad for God to save me. While it's rare, there are times when we will run into someone who thinks that they're too bad for God to save them. They're too much of a sinner for God to save them. Now, sometimes it's false humility, but sometimes people really do believe that. They understand what they've done is wrong. They understand that life up to this point has been a disaster. They've blown it. They've wrecked it. They've hurt people. They've done incredible damage, irreversible sometimes, to people. And they just feel like when they hear the terms of the gospel or they get an initial understanding of it, or at least the ideas come their way, they think, this isn't for me. I'm too bad. This Christianity is not for me. God would not save me because of what I've done. The reasons could be many. It may be crimes that they have committed, real crimes, could be abuse. They've abused people in their lives. Could be uh, maybe it's a woman who's had an abortion and she comes to grips with the fact that that baby was murdered. And uh, she may think, well, God could never forgive me. God could never save me because of what I've done. Could be addictions. People struggle with all kinds of addictions that destroy all kinds of lives, not only theirs, but uh, everybody in their sphere of influence and it can have a profound effect. The fact, though, is this, folks. According to the Word of God, we all have the same story. Now, if you don't think that's true, have you really understood your sin in light of the way God sees it? Because when you do, we all have the same story. We oftentimes don't see our sinfulness as God does because we compare ourselves with other people. And that, of course, according to Scripture, is not wise. According to Romans 6.23, see, here's the truth of it. I want you to see Romans 6.23, it says this. You're familiar with this verse, but it bears repeating. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. According to Romans 6.23, all sin brings with it the death penalty. All right? Now, you may not have robbed a bank. You may not have killed somebody. You may not have uh, been responsible for some abuse of somebody or violation of somebody or whatever it may be. But here's the truth of it. We are all sinners. And even if we committed one sin in our entire life, that is enough in the eyes of a holy God for us to spend forever suffering in hell because of it. That is the scripture. That is what the Bible teaches. So let's go through here. We're going to pick up in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, because this is important. You might say, oh, Timothy must have been terrible. Well, actually, we're not focusing on Timothy here. We're actually focusing on the one who's writing to him, Paul, because Paul is talking about his life, his life. And so let's, number one, look at the problem. The problem is, as I've mentioned, we are all, according to scripture, wicked sinners, wicked sinners. First Timothy 1.8, it says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Of course, we covered this in more detail last week. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for disobedient. Have you ever been disobedient to God? For the ungodly and for sinners. Have you ever been ungodly? Have you ever been a sinner? 
For unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, by the way, that's talking about homosexuality, all right? For men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now you go through there and you might say, well, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm not a murderer of fathers. I'm not a murderer of mothers. I'm not a manslayer. But let me ask you this. Did you see the line just above it for the ungodly and for sinners? Guess what? We all have the same story. We all have the same problem. We're all sinners. And because of that, there's a death payment that has to be made for our sin. God is a God of justice and holiness. And by the way, we ought to be glad he is because things would be even much worse than they are if he wasn't. But this is the truth of it. Now hold your place here and turn with me to Romans chapter three. Sometimes I talk to people or witness to people. Uh, I've had this happen at the Benton County Fair talking to people and they'll say, well, they start understanding what we're talking about with the gospel and they can't accept it. They can't accept it. And they'll say things like, you mean to say that a mass murderer, that God would allow a mass murderer into heaven? Is that what you're telling me? I can't accept that. Now for them to say that is for them to say they're better than the mass murderer. Now, granted, they may not have done mass murder, but according to God, you're not better. You're not better. You may be if we're looking at each other and grading each other on a relative scale, but not according to what it takes to get to heaven, because what it takes to get to heaven is you have to be sinless to get into heaven. Well, none of us are, therefore, we all have the same story. In Romans 3.19, it says, But we know that what things soever the law, the commandment saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Every single one of us has broken the commandments of God. And if we have broken the commandments of God, according to God, we are guilty, we stand condemned, and we have a serious problem that we're facing. So this is the problem. And the problem is that we are all wicked sinners. One more verse on this concept, and then we will uh, move on. Turn with me to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I want you to see Revelation. I want you to go to chapter 21, where it is talking about the new heaven and the new earth that is going to be coming. And in Revelation chapter 21, talking about the final eternal heaven where we are going to live for all eternity with the Lord. Here's what it says in Revelation 21, 27. And there shall in no wise and no way enter into it, talking about in the context heaven, anything that defiles, neither whatsoever worketh an abomination. Abomination is evil. If you've ever done anything evil, if you've ever defiled, if you've ever sinned, or maketh a lie, if you've ever told a lie, it says, no way will anyone or anything enter into it, anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works an abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So even a lie is enough to keep you out of heaven. Now, to keep a person out of heaven means that you spend eternity separated from God in the torments of hell itself. 
That is how serious God is about sin. All right? And until a person understands that it is impossible for them to earn their way to heaven by their good works, because see, folks, if you've already sinned, your good works are of no value because we've already blown it. We're already stand guilty. We stand condemned. Oh, but I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to live a good life and I'm going to go to church every week and I'm going to get baptized and I'm going to do my best to keep the commandments and I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to be sorry and I'm going to confess and all that. No, a payment has to be made. I hear that sometimes. Well, as long as I confess my sin, I can get in heaven. No, friend, you need a payment for sin. To confess your sin is just an acknowledgement and admittance that you have sinned against God, that you have violated the word of God. That's all confession is. Confession does not pay for sin. Death is the payment for sin. Death is the payment. So who couldn't use some good news? Well, let's go back to 1 Timothy. Paul was very familiar with the law. He was a Pharisee. He'd memorized large portions of the Bible, the Old Testament. He knew it very well. He was steeped in Judaism. He was an expert in Judaism. And he knew what it was to try to keep the law. And when he broke the law himself, he would make sure he had a a sufficient sacrifice according to the Old Testament law to where that would cover that for the time being. Very aware of it. But it wasn't until later on that he understood he had to have a savior. He couldn't do it himself. Which leads us to verse 11, the way of deliverance. And the way of deliverance is through the message we call the gospel. The gospel and what it contains. It says in verse 11, it says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now let's back it up to verse 11 again. The way of deliverance is through this message, the glorious gospel, the glorious good news. What is the good news? Well, the gospel is the door of deliverance from hell to heaven. It's how you escape hell and you get into heaven. It is through the message of the gospel. It is through the message of what Christ has done for us that we can be saved. Well, what has he done for us? Well, let's let the scriptures answer that. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5. Turn there, Romans chapter 5. And here we see this issue again. It does no good to compare yourself with somebody else. Well, I think I'll make it. Why? Well, I'm better than this person. You know, I'm, I'm better than Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm, I'm better than, you know, Charles Manson. Well, I hope so on a human scale. But friend, that's not going to get you to heaven. Remember, not even one lie gets in. Not even one lie. The wages of sin, period, is death. You have to be perfect to get into heaven. Who is? Nobody is. And we come to this passage, again, written by Paul the Apostle after he had trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and God revealed this to him. And it says in Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, remember that, without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. The way we judge one another, okay, the way we look at each other. 
Maybe for some people, depending on how they were, somebody would die, or maybe for another type of person, maybe somebody would die for them, okay? In the idea of, well, you know, I, I, think, I think they deserve it, but wait a minute, wait a minute. No one does according to Scripture. We've already established that. But look at verse 8. But God commendeth or displayed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's not based on good works. It's based on the fact that we are sinners and we need a savior. And until we understand we are sinners, guilty, condemned before God, we will never understand we can't save ourselves and we need a savior. You need to understand your loss before you're ever going to get saved. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is, yes, we are lost or were lost, but God sent his son to take care of the payment for our sins so we don't have to. And that is what he did. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, he gives us as a gift everlasting life. But God commended, put on display. That's the word commend means to display. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you notice it doesn't say once we cleaned up our act, Christ died for us. Once we were sufficiently sorry for everything we've ever done wrong, Christ died for us. No, it doesn't say that. Once we got to the point to where we really meant business with God, God saved us. No. Guilty condemned, lost sinners. And God says, I'll save you. I'll save you as a sinner. That's the good news. Much more than being now justified, declared righteous by his blood, referring to the payment Jesus made, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This speaks of something that is one of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, and it's the word grace. Over here, we have these verses. You know them well. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. According to Romans, God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look up here. This is you and me, and my wallet represents all the things we do wrong. All of our sin. We're all sinners. Our sin separates us from God. You cannot get to heaven with even one sin, not even one. I said, well, I know that that person, boy, I'll tell you what, that person is awful. They have just, they live in sin. I mean, they're, they're immoral, they're corrupt, they're doing drugs, they're doing this, they're doing that. There's no way God could ever save a person like that. Yes, he can. He can save them just the same way he saves you. If you committed only one sin, you would need to be saved. Yeah, but what about the person who does a million of them? Doesn't matter. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. God loves us. He hates our sin, but we're separated from him. To get to heaven, we have to be sinless in the eyes of God. No good works that we could ever do will pay for sin. Death, remember, is the only payment. The wages of sin is death. And that means we would die not only physically, but we would be separated from God forever and ever in hell. Now, that's a bad place to be. And you know, folks, we don't know when we're going to die. So if you don't have your sin taken care of before you die, there are no second chances, and you would suffer forever. 
You know, this is such an uncomfortable and unpopular message, and there are very few people who will even talk about hell. But it needs to be talked about, because avoiding it doesn't make it go away. So what are we going to do? If the best we can do, our good works will not save us, what are we going to do? Well, this is the beauty of it. This hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ. God who took on flesh, he went to the cross of Calvary. God commended, put on display his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For, in our place, as a substitute. He was buried. He rose from the grave. And he says in his word, if you will put your faith, your trust in him, that he made that payment for you, the moment you do, all of your sins are taken care of. He made the payment 2,000 years ago, but it's not good on your behalf until you put your faith in him, till you believe in him that he did it for you. And the moment you put your faith in him that he did that for you, that payment is put to your account, okay, or... He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness whereby you go to heaven simply by putting your faith in Christ. See, that's grace. You might say, I still don't understand it. Well, that leads us to number three, the source of victory, which is the grace of God. Let's go back to 1 Timothy, and I think you'll get a beautiful picture of it here in 1 Timothy. Back to 1 Timothy, in verse 11 again, it says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. That's once he had trusted Jesus Christ the Savior. And then he talks about how he was before he got saved. And look at verse 13 now. Who was before a blasphemer. He was religious but lost. He was sincere, but wrong. He was zealous, but for the wrong thing. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. He would injure people. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He did it as a lost person. He was deceived. He thought he was on the right path, but he was on the wrong path. He thought he was doing the will of God, but he wasn't doing the will of God. See, folks, we can be sincerely wrong, but yet be sincere. He was a blasphemer. He didn't know it because he had never trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. But once he understood who Jesus was, that he was the Lord himself who made the payment for sin and came back from the dead, he put his faith in him, and then he understood, I have been blaspheming God himself. A persecutor of what? Of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did did it ignorantly in unbelief, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Grace, grace. What is grace? Well, we talk about it a lot around here. Grace is unmerited grace favor, undeserved favor or kindness. It is not something we deserve because of something we do. That's not grace. You don't get grace. God does not deal with you by grace because of what you do. He deals with you by grace because that's what he wants to do. Understand that. You can't deserve grace. Do we get it? 
How many of you understand what I just said? You can't deserve grace. If you deserve something, it's not grace. Grace is, as one source says, grace is a favor done without expectation of return, the absolute free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, capital G, unearned and unmerited. That's grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. Now, verse 14 says, And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I believe it's talking about this, with faith and love. The idea is together with faith and love. In other words, God's grace is poured out on us, and we respond with faith. And then, once we're saved, love towards him because of what he's done for us and his grace that was bestowed upon us. And that's a proper response to grace, is to love the Lord because of it. How many people, how many people, you don't have to raise your hand, when they got saved, the first thing they did was start falling in love with the Lord. That was the result of being saved by grace. It isn't that way with everyone. It's not necessarily even emotional with every person. I'm just saying that this can be the case. But see, it says in Romans 5.20, It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Can I tell you this, friend? Now, God doesn't want us to live in sin. God doesn't want us even to sin. But listen carefully. There is no sin bigger than the grace of God. No sin. No amount of sins bigger than the grace of God of God. If you believe that there could come a point in your life to where God could not forgive, you don't know the grace of God that's in the Bible. Grace is infinite. Grace is unmerited. You see, if if we are talking about, I can live right or I can sin a certain amount to this point, but after that, I'm out of bounds of the grace of God. It's, it's way more than grace could cover. You don't understand grace. Romans 5.20 says, For where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Which leads us to our fourth point, and it is this, the example of grace. And Paul is talking about that he himself is an example of the grace of God. Let's pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter one, we'll start again in verse 14. It says, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul's talking about himself. Now, you know, some people read that and they say, well, he's just, you know, he's just, uh, it's some false humility there. He's talking about how bad he was, how wicked a guy. Listen, this guy believed it. Do you understand? And if you're going to compare the way he, what he did with what some other people do, yes, you could consider him chief if that's how you're going to score it. By the way, it's kind of interesting. The word chief, usually in the Bible, it is translated as the word first. 84 times in the New Testament, the word first is the same Greek word. You could read verse 15 as this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm first. I'm first. 
If you were to rank who is the most sinful of all, he says, I'm number one. That's how he saw it. I believe this with all my heart. It is because of the overwhelming realization of the grace of God that is what fueled the Apostle Paul to be the great man of God that he was. He was so awestruck by God's grace to him that it made the most profound effect in his personal life. He was first as far as sinners go. He was the great persecutor of the church. Remember now, remember, he was the great persecutor of the church. He dragged, literally, the Bible tells us, he dragged men and women out of their homes. Now, where scripture doesn't say it, obviously I can't say it with certainty, but I I kind of believe or lean to the fact that it was probably in front of their children at times. Imagine him having orders or having soldiers go in to homes, getting mom and dad and dragging them out of the home. And what would he do? He dragged them out of their home to be persecuted, to be sentenced, and to be killed. This is what he did. This was his life before the cross, before he put his faith in Christ. And he took pleasure in it. Remember, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. It says he was consenting unto his death. That means he was taking pleasure in watching Stephen stoned to death. He took pleasure in this, and having Christians killed was consuming his life. He would travel from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus with the sole purpose of getting Christians, flushing them out and getting them persecuted and getting them killed. This was his life. Now, if God could save Saul, who became Paul, don't you think he can save you? If we are going to compare, don't you think he could save you? I don't care what you've done, friends. God can save you. God can save you from hell. God can con- forgive. It is not based on you deserving it. It's not even based on your sincerity. It is based on what Christ did on the cross for you. Can God save a murderer? Yes. God saved Paul. He was either directly or indirectly responsible for that. I've heard this one. There's no way God will save a mass murderer. There's no way. You don't understand what Christ did, and you don't understand the grace of God. No sin, no amount of sin is bigger than the grace of God. Oh, it is up to the sinner to accept the payment Christ made. If they don't, they'll be lost forever, and they will stand one day at the great white throne judgment and give an account, and punishment will be meted out. I believe in degrees, depending on their sin and what they did and how they live. The lost will be judged according to their works, not to determine whether they're going to go to heaven. That was already determined when they died without Christ, but to determine their level of punishment. Jesus talked about the false teachers of his day, and he said they would have a greater condemnation. Not just that they would be condemned, a greater condemnation. That signifies different amounts. I've heard this one. And listen, to some people, what I'm about to say is an outrageous statement. I've heard people say, there's no way 
God could ever save somebody like Adolf Hitler. And by the way, there are people who have killed more than him. Do you understand that? It's just that we usually don't talk about it. But there's no way God could save a person like Adolf Hitler. Yes, there is. Am I saying he was saved? No, probably not. But would God have saved him had he seen his sin as it was, had he put his faith in Jesus Christ as his payment for sin, would God have saved him? Listen, if your answer is no, you think you're better or good enough. Listen, friend, God would have done it. I'm not saying he did, but the payment Jesus made was sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. All of them, everyone that anybody has ever committed. The Lord saves us. Well, look at verse 16. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. What is he saying? That the Lord saves us so that we can be examples of his grace at work. So he could be glorified. When God saved me, he saved me for a reason, not just to keep me out of hell. He saved me so that I would be born again. I would be a child of God. And hopefully I would live my life as a testimony to the saving grace of God. That's why he saved me. Was it a requirement for me to live my life? No. But he says in Ephesians 2.10 that I should walk in good works. See, here's the problem, folks. Most people have it so drilled into their heads, they've learned their whole life, that you go to heaven by behaving yourself, that you can some way merit it. Some may, listen, there are people who say, oh no, the way I'm going to heaven is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. But then they'll say this in the same breath. But if I don't behave right, I was probably never saved. Or if I don't behave right, maybe I won't go. You're still confusing the issue. The issue is this. Did Jesus pay for all your sins or didn't he? Have you accepted the payment he made or haven't you? If you accepted the payment he made as your payment, he saved you and he forgave you of all your sin and you are justified, declared righteous from all your sin. Should we as believers live lives of gratefulness to him? Yes. But does that save us? No. Does it keep us saved? No. No matter what we do after we believe, if we've believed, we're still saved. Immediately, I, hear, I say that statement and I hear people say, that's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. Praise God. God doesn't save by fairness because none of us would go to heaven. Are we getting this? If it was a matter of fairness, here's the fairness. I have sinned against the holy God. I deserve to burn in hell. That's fair. That's justice. We're not saved by justice. We're saved by grace. And that stops all the comparisons, and that stops all the self-righteousness. A group of believers were meeting by a river when one of their group fell into the water. It was obvious that the poor fellow couldn't swim as he thrashed about wildly. One of the believers was a strong swimmer and was called on to jump in and save the man before the man drowned. But though able to save the drowning man, he just watched until the wild struggles subsided. 
Then he dove in and pulled the man to safety. When the rescue was over, the rescuer explained his slowness to act. He said, if I had jumped in immediately, he would have been strong enough to drown us both. Only by waiting until he was too exhausted to try to save himself could I save him. It seems to be all too easy for us to be like the drowning man. Our self-efforts can actually prevent us from being saved. Unfortunately, some people must reach the point of being too exhausted to continue trying to save themselves by dealing with their own sin before they become willing to trust in the Savior and accept the gift of salvation. How about you? Are you still trying to earn it? Are you still trying to work for it? Are you still trying to be good enough to get it? You can't. You'll never make it. You're going to drown. If you die without Christ as your Savior, friend, you'll be lost forever. No second chances. Which leads us to our last point. We see it in verse 17. The only one worthy of praise, God himself. What is that saying? It's saying this, if I get to heaven, not if, I don't mean if, I know I'm going, but when I get to heaven, the only thing that I would ever be able to say for eternity is, I'm here by the grace of God. I'm here by the grace of God. I'm here by the payment Jesus made. You will never hear anyone ever say in heaven, I'm here because I earned it. You'll never hear it. You might say, how do you know that? Because you're only saved by grace. You can't earn it. Our last point is this. We see in verse 17, the only one worthy of praise, and that is God himself. In verse 17, it says, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you look at verse 17, it is about as high of a description of our Lord as you can give. Think about it. Meditate on it. Number one, he's king. Unto the king. What does that mean? He is the sovereign of the universe. He will have his way forever. He wins. Evil loses. Satan is doomed. All sin will be banished. All believers will live in joy and happiness forever with the Lord. He is king. He's the sovereign of the universe. He'll have his way. Secondly, he is eternal. That means he'll never change. He's always been there and he will always be there. He's not going anywhere. No one's going to knock him out. Satan's not going to give him any trouble. Third, he's immortal. God is eternal. He is immortal. That means he's immortal. That means he'll never die. He'll never die. Jesus conquered death. That's why he can offer life. Fourth, he's invisible. He's a spirit. And fifth, he is the only wise God. He is the exclusive source of true wisdom. All other so-called gods are false and foolish. It is amazing. My wife and I have been to India several times. And if you go to some areas... They have, right in the town square, they have these gods 
that they have created. They've created these gods, and every one of them, by the way, has an, a weird look about it. Some of them are part human, part elephant. Some of them are just evil looking with mean faces on them. These are demons, folks. These are demonic. And people offer all kinds of stuff. They'll go, they'll go to the river and they'll offer sacrifices there. I mean, it's just horrific. I'm not even going to go into detail on some of the things that go on. Uh, I don't know if they still do it. In times past, they would offer their children up to appease these gods, offer them up to the crocodile gods, because they figured the gods, these gods that they have, and they have millions of them. Did you know that in Hinduism? There's millions of God, of gods. You'd think that they would wonder, if we need millions of gods, maybe none of them can do the job sufficiently. We have one because he's true. He is God. When you trust Christ the Savior, you're in the family of God, you're secure forever, and it's a welcome to the family. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you trust him today? Friend, listen, no one is so wicked that God cannot save them. Doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is what Christ has done for you. Trust him as your Savior. He will give you everlasting life as a gift. All sin forgiven. Past, present, future, all forgiven because he took care of it on the cross some 2,000 years ago. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.